Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis along with Richard Harris. Well, markets rally sharply overnight on Mario Draghi's hints about QE. Amazon moves to acquire gamer website Twitch. Burger King looks to acquire Tim Hortons from Canada. And thousands of casino workers hit the streets in Macau. Just some of the stories that we're following this morning. And here's a little food for thought. If you look at what's happened today, I think it's clearly a QE trade. If you look at the, the rally in uh, European bonds and the rally in some of the peripheral stock markets there, they're basically boosted by what Draghi said over the weekend. The S&P 500 hit 2,000 for the first time ever. And so we'll be looking at markets. Europe rallied quite sharply as well. And we'll have more on Amazon getting Twitch over Google. This is a business, I think, that's not widely known outside of the world of gamers, but it's so important in the world of gaming. So important. That's Corey Johnson from Bloomberg, and we'll hear from him why it's so important in a few short minutes. In our featured segments this morning, can the Hang Seng Index make a decisive break above the 25,000 level? Joining us for that is Brooke McConnell of South Ocean Management. We'll also be looking at cloud computing with Ajit Malarkade of uh, Rackspace. And we'll also be looking at the MPF's uh, proposed core fund and how that will affect the city's retirement planning industry. Joining us for that discussion is Francis Chung of MPF Ratings Limited. Here's how the Asian markets are moving in the early going. Uh, the Nikkei's down 12 points. In Australia, the ASX 200 up a couple of points. In Seoul, the Kospi is up eight points. In currencies, the dollar yen 104.09. That's the dollar stronger against the yen. The euro is uh, weaker against the dollar 130. 3186 and the pound is now trading at 12 Hong Kong dollars and 83 cents. So as we mentioned on Wall Street stocks rose and rose fairly sharply. The S&P 500 getting up over 2000 for a brief period of time. Corporate deals and prospects for economic stimulus in Europe lifted confidence. We might see QE from the ECB next year. What was really clear about uh, Draghi's comments was that inflation and inflationary expectations are falling on the low side, and that's going to lead to more stimulus. Uh, all these central bankers have noted a rise in uh, part-time workers and also very low wage gains globally, and so this means that central banks are going to ha have to do more for longer. That's Mark Kiesel from PIMCO. The S&P 500 rallied 0.5% to 1997. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 75 points at 17,076. Volume, though, was very low as it was on Friday. Jens Norwig from Nomura agrees with Mr. Kiesel that QE in Europe is probably coming. Yeah, I think the underlying trend in Europe has weakened. So we had a couple of quarters where it looked a little bit better, and now we're down to essentially zero GDP growth again. So that's putting a lot of pressure on the ECB. And very importantly, they've already said that if medium-term inflation expectations start to get unanchored, then we have to act. So then we have to act. Many investors have been feeling a little uncomfortable that stocks and bonds are rallying at the same time. For instance, the yield on the 10-year Treasury was down a couple of basis points to 2.38% at a time when stocks were up at an all-time high. Mark Kiesel gives us his take on why that's happening. 
And I think what's happening is you've got a very accommodative central bank in the Fed, which is going to be very patient raising rates. That'll keep the term structure of rates lower. That's going to revalue up th things like equities and real estate. You've also got an improving private sector. So equities are in the sweet spot right now with, with improving fundamentals and a very supportive central bank. And also the credit markets are supported because central banks around the world are trying to push out the next recession. That's going to keep defaults very low and money flowing into the credit markets. M&A activity led to some big moves in the market today. Burger King gained 20% after saying it's in talks to buy Tim Hortons of Canada. That would get Burger King into the breakfast segment, as Tim Horton is big in uh, coffee and donuts in Canada. And Amazon made a nearly $1 billion move on gamer website Twitch. We get more here from Bloomberg's Corey Johnson. This is a business I think that's not widely known outside of the world of gamers, but it's so important in the world of gaming. Uh, Amazon spending $970 million, we expect them to take that as a, as a long-term acquisition uh, on their cash flow statement, so it won't really affect uh, cash flow from operations, of course. It'll, it'll take a chunk out of the balance sheet there. But uh, a very interesting acquisition for them is you can see them trying to build up their, their streaming video business. There is possibly nothing hotter in streaming video, and I will include Netflix in that, nothing hotter than Twitch. So nothing hotter than Twitch. Twitch is sometimes, uh, or actually often, I guess, in the top five of web traffic uh, websites in the United States. Here locally, some news that you can look out for today. Agricultural Bank of China will be coming out with its earnings, as will Costco Pacific, Henderson Land, Want Want, among the uh, companies reporting. We're getting to the last big week of earnings uh, in Hong Kong. Bank of China's aviation leasing unit has ordered $8.8 .8 billion of jets from Boeing. And also uh, looking at uh, the protests in Macau, more than a thousand casino workers took to the streets in Macau yesterday. It's the seventh time this year they're demanding better pay and working conditions. Workers marched and stopped in front of most of the enclave's biggest casinos. Just a couple of other quick notes before we get to our guests. Uh, gold trading at $1,277.30 an ounce. So that's a bit lower for gold. And oil prices um, steady at about $102 a barrel. Brent crude, $102.65. Let's say good morning to Brooke McConnell, President and Chief Investment Officer at South Ocean Management. Mr. McConnell, good morning. Good morning. So what are you looking out for the most today? What's on your mind the most as we look at uh, trading in the Hong Kong market? Um, the markets um, since, let's say, uh, March, May, uh, they, they've rallied quite sharply from 21,000, 22,000 up to the 25,000 level. And we seem to be just stuck here grinding through this uh, 25,000 level. Uh, which is good. I think that's that's an action that um, uh, you know consolidation of this big move and 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 getting ready for the next move up. So, you know, I'm 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 I, I want to see this uh, continued uh, consolidation happening. When we hit twenty five thousand, I think a lot of us thought that maybe we would uh, consolidate or maybe even go down a bit. And then there was some bad news out of China a couple of days back, and uh, the index held pretty steady. And it seems like at the moment the momentum is still up. Um, do you agree? Oh, I, I, I do agree. I don't have a you know a good timing as to when this happens. I I could guess the October uh, plenum meeting by the, by the leaders in China. 
will uh, announce some policies that will be beneficial. You know, the, the stock market is extremely cheap still, relatively. Um, it's been in a six-year uh, trading range. It just broke through the, the six-year high. So that, that's an indication that the market does want to go higher. Uh, you know, stocks are cheap. Uh, Eleven times on the uh, Hang Seng, single digits on the on the China shares. So, you know, the risk gain ratios are, are still in, in favor here. And 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 you've got uh, the through train coming. Uh, money is coming into that. You can see that with the Hong Kong Monetary Authority trying to uh, you know quell the dollars rise, Hong Kong dollar rise here. So. There's a lot of positives uh, moving into the fourth quarter, I'd see. Richard Harris from Port Shelter Investment Management, the CEO there, is also with us on the program. Richard, good morning to you. Hello, Brian. I just wonder whether or not, do you think that the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect might be one of these, um, you know, sell on the news. Uh, so we've been running up with the anticipation. Uh, is it possible we lose ground then? Well, of course, that's really what history would tell us, is these sort of things have been lauded much at the beginning. And then as you go through, we have disappointments on quotas uh, and these kind of things. And it isn't quite the thing that we all think. So we're running on hope at the moment, uh, and we still have hope. And if it does work out, it could be a really good thing. But by all accounts, this is supposed to be announced in just uh, six weeks or so, uh, and there are a lot of big problems to sort through yet. Yes, but apparently the test that was conducted uh, ran pretty smoothly. Uh, Mr. McConnell, do you do you um, think that the stock market um, lives in a completely separate universe from the economy? Uh, and can we explain in a sense that the, while the Hong Kong economy is decelerating at the moment, that the market has seemingly caught fire? Yeah. No, stock market and economy are two different animals. Um, stock market and earnings are, are, are congruent over long periods of time. Uh, the stock market has been down because it was in already anticipation, say, nine, 12 months ago of, of, a, of, a, of a slackening economy. Mm. And the earnings coming out today, are some of them are surprisingly bad, and that's because China's been a slowdown. So it's already anticipated. It's the next move nine months out. That today's so, so the market is actually getting out in front. It's telling us that things will get better down the road. Well, you, you can't trust the market all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, when, you, when you talk about um, having a kind of bullish um, lean at the moment, uh, does that extend to eight shares, uh, China stocks uh, generally? And would you be an active buyer once the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect comes in? At South Ocean Management, we focus on individual, you know, bottom-up uh, uh, individual stocks that uh, we think will, will have the best risk-gain ratios. Uh, with the eight-share market, that's that's filled up with financials, uh, some uh, material stocks, and resource-oriented stocks, and and they're real hard to time and and put together into a uh, any type of a portfolio that we run. Um, so, in in China, though, you, you know, you have really two segments of, of stocks. You have the Shanghai stocks, you know, Ch Shanghai Rubber Belt and some just, you know, buggy whip type companies and a lot of financials and they're all cheap now, but who knows when they're going to make the next move. And then you have, the, you know, the, the Shenzhen market, which is the real excitement. With sports. That's the new area of growth for China. And that's that's the area that's going to be uh, benefiting, I think. So what do you like there, either individual companies or sectors? Um. I, we focus on the best risk-gain ratios. We still find those in the Hong Kong stock market. Um, and quite frankly, uh, there are a lot of great stocks that w we look out in the next five, ten years that will do well. But uh, 
today, I'd like to see the market consolidate more. I'd love to see it even come down and find some more bargains in the market to uh, to be involved with. Um, a year ago, there was just tons of them, and today there are less. But we're, you know, we're still finding individual bargains as we screen. Uh, the market. I'm working on this theory that a lot of European money has has rolled in and maybe even a lot of Russian money because if you look at um, when the market has caught a bid, obviously everybody's talking about Hong Kong China stocks and you see these utilities and REITs and and these types of companies that have really had a bounce. Uh, that seems odd in, in one sense unless it's just a flood of money looking for a kind of safe home. Um, why have the REITs and the utilities been rallying so sharply? Yeah, good question. Um, the, the, the utilities in uh, when I first got here twenty years ago, I went up to factories where there were all these young gals working, and I thought it was going to be a sweatshop. But these gals were real excited, and one of the things they were most excited about was at nighttime just having a light bulb to congregate around. I mean, you know, electricity is still still got a huge growth in in China. They're putting on a second grid up in China. They've got wind farms and solar farms that are going to connect and. So, I mean, these utility companies are really growth companies. It's, it's amazing. And they were cheap um, earlier this year. But even, even CLP and Power Assets, uh, Hong well, Kong listed shares? They so. are, but uh, I don't think those are direct plays as, as you can get in other utility stocks uh, for the China play. Um, China Power is one hydroelectric um, um, ventures and um, Huadian Power. These are really growth stocks when you when you start pulling them apart and seeing what their what their their future plans are. Okay, let's talk a little bit about um, valuations, uh, and I've got a couple of more uh, comments here from the earlier guests that I played, uh, and then we'll continue with our discussion uh, with you, uh, Mr. McConnell, and also with. Um, uh, with Richard Harris. And uh, coming up shortly will be Francis Chung, Chief Executive of MPF Ratings. And then later we'll be talking uh, cloud computing in the program. But in light of this nearly $1 billion paid for just a three-year-old company, um, what about the notion that some tech and biotech companies uh, could be overvalued? You know, we heard that from Janet Yellen about a month ago when she said that biotech and tech showed some signs of being overvalued. Well, they caught quite a bit after that and people were laughing that Yellen Capital maybe wasn't the best predictor. But anyway, let's get a comment here from Mark Kiesel about whether or not stocks are overvalued. There's no question you're going to see pockets of overvaluation. And, you know, what we're doing is we're looking for companies with, with have strong growth, superior asset quality, barriers to entry. Those businesses are not uh, in a bubble territory. In fact, the equity market overall is fair and many businesses are still attractive. We would even argue the credit markets are attractive here. So in the context of a very, very low interest rate environment, equities are going to be revalued upwards. So are the credit markets. So he still thinks there's a lot of value in both stocks and bonds in the United States. You kind of wonder what he would think about uh, valuations here since we're so low. And uh, in terms of when interest rates might go up, the question was put to Jens Norwig. I think this is the key issue right now because it could be in March. And I think as we go into September, the Fed will tone down its forward guidance. So the preparation for these hikes could be happening in the next few months. And that's why I think you don't want to be too complacent about owning risk assets. Right now, volatility is coming down again. Emerging markets are doing well. If the Fed surprises September, that's going to move the market. Richard Harris uh, is my co-host this morning. 
And Richard, uh, do you think that interest rates going up will have a negative effect on us here in Hong Kong, given that we're so um, you know, married to high property prices, we have a high cost here, and we're going to have to uh, be raising interest rates along with uh, the U.S.? Interest rates, we are very sensitive to interest rates. There's no two ways about that um, uh, from a whole bunch of areas, and especially the property sector, um, but also because our economy moves on a different beat to the U.S. So the U.S. interest rates may not necessarily uh, be right for us. But I think we have to be a little bit careful about how quickly we think they're going to go up. It, it looks as if Yellen is edging on the dove side at the moment, no matter what she says. It looks as if the Fed is desperately trying to alert us all to the fact that rates are going to go up. And my guess is we're still looking at least another year out, and then it'll be tiny. So... Well, you're way past consensus then. Most people are assuming now the middle of next year, and you're starting to hear more people say the first quarter of next year. Well, I reckon I'm consensus from about three weeks ago. I think uh, people have moved up, um, and I suspect people will move back. Because if you look at what the Fed is saying, one of their key indicators now is the strength of the labor market. Look at your figures last night. The strength of the labor market is not too, too strong, and it certainly looks as if the participation rate, you know, the kind of people uh, who actually want to get back in the market, um, is still pretty low. So if that's an indicator, then it means that interest rates are going to be pushed out just a little bit longer. Mr. McConnell, final question to you. Uh, is Janet Yellen moving to the neutral position or is she still an Uber dove? Um, I read everything I guess everybody else does and I'm, I'm not really a Fed watcher. I don't really paid too much attention to that. You're well, a bottoms-up guy. You yeah, just look at the companies yeah, and, exactly. and their earnings and uh, no the valuation. Them. Forget about the macro. You don't have to worry about that, it. Interest rates don't matter. That, that, well, interest rates matter. Inflation matters. Earnings per share matter. Uh, those are the things I, I, I try and uh, gauge. Um, and but you I don't think, want to get too involved in you know, uh, trying to glean exactly what she meant by this word or that? I, I, I really don't dissect what she has to say. Um, you know, it looks like deflation is, is starting to alleviate in the U.S. I was there recently, and a lot of the slack in the economy is is being taken up. And when the when where that's going to hit the inflation buttons and the interest rate buttons, are, you know. Okay, um, what's your single best investment idea at the moment? Hong Kong stocks. I'm, 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 I'm. I'm I'm right now um, involved uh, in some stocks that have done well. We've got them, and it's it's in the 4G area of China, which is developing. Uh, and we have a cloud computing expert here; he could give you a lot more on the uh, on that on that area. But um, China is building out the 4G, which is the next generation cellular. And everybody's on a cell phone up in China, and and uh, smartphones are now being made by um, uh, are being made in the in the tens of millions in anticipation. And so there's some companies benefiting from that sector that are still cheap, uh, and they're and they're well positioned to um, to grow in that area. Care to mention a couple? Uh, Tongda is one we own. It's about a dollar ten a share. I don't recall the uh, code. That's okay. Just the name's um, fine. And then we own another one that's reporting today. As a matter of fact, so I'll have a better update uh, after after they announce. It's called China Fiber. They actually put the uh, the cords in the back of those servers that uh, go into the base stations and uh, all the uh, storage. Okay. Up there. So it's a little technical, but um, they're, they're, they're niche plays in a very fast growth area. All right. Thanks very much, yeah. Mr. McConnell. Uh, thank you for joining us here on Money for Nothing, and we'd love to have you back. Brooke McConnell, President and Chief Investment Officer of South Ocean Management.
This is Money for Nothing. The time's 22 minutes after 8. Thanks very much for joining us here. Well, you've heard about some MPF opportunities that will be lower cost than what's previously available. These are the so-called core funds, but perhaps you don't know the details. Well, the consultation on adjustments to the MPF scheme, that consultation will run through September. MPF Ratings is finalizing its 2015 questionnaire for schemes. And Francis Chung, Chief Executive of MPF Ratings, joins us here on the program. Francis, good morning. Morning, Richard. How are you? No, I'm Brian. Richard's oh, here sorry. with me. That's okay. Um, we're going to double team you, okay? So you better have your ducks in a row. Uh, first of all, for people who are a little bit, um, you know, sort of can't remember the news when it came out, uh, define again what these core funds are all about. Yeah, look, it's interesting because the, the core funds have been attributed to the concept of a default fund, um, essentially. Um, should MPF members just not know what decision to take, money gets placed in a default. And at the moment, there's no particular mandate for defaults. Some of the schemes have life cycle funds, lifestyle target dates, and others just simply use conservative funds. What's interesting, though, with the core funds, which probably hasn't been publicised as much in the consultation paper, is that it's not just a default option. Um, Investors can choose as part of choice to invest in this so-called proposed core fund. And this is one of the big appeals that you're talking 75 basis points instead of like one and three quarter ba- basis points. I mean, I mean uh, interest rates uh, or um, percentage points. Yeah, look, I, MPF Ratings is very much a believer in, in the concept of value for money, but simply reducing fees for the sake of reducing fees actually doesn't necessarily produce a better product outcome. There's no doubt there has been pressure on fees. Fees have come down. Um, fees ultimately eat up into um, returns, but at the end of the day, if there's a trade-off between um, a reduction in fees and, say, active management, then the quality of the product and the ability to actually add value actually reduces. But certainly that is going to be one of the attractions of, of a core fund. Francis, what's basically going to be in these core funds? Because a lot of the providers will say, well, we already have a global equity fund or something, which yes. could be used as a default. Yeah, look... Again, that, that's a very good question. There, there's, you know, MPF Ratings has been very public about um, default funds well before uh, the consultation paper. Because one of the things that we identified is that um, schemes define default funds as protecting risk. And our view is that schemes that use a conservative fund are actually not looking after risk in the best interests of members. If you've got an average time horizon of 25 years um, before you retire, well, having your money in a conservative fund earning next to nothing um, actually isn't going to allow you to retire. Um, Equally, investing in some risk assets, while there's volatility on a month-by-month or year-by-year basis over a 25-year or 40-year time horizon, that volatility becomes minimal and the probability of actually achieving your, your, um, uh, your retirement objectives is actually much higher. And, you know, we've been quoted as actually saying that um, this consultation paper and the point about core funds is actually a slap or a slight punishment for um, schemes that have offered conservative funds in the past. But actually, it indirectly penalises what I would say more innovative 
um, scheme providers such as Fidelity and Schroders and HSBC who have actually gone out there historically and have provided those default options that we believe over the long term would actually achieve member objectives. <laughs> It isn't, isn't uh, one of the problems is the MPF has actually been criticised uh, for providing funds that actually have quite a lot of risk in. You know, you're talking about bond funds and equity funds. Yeah. Now, what happens if interest rates go up? They may, might all be hit. Uh, isn't that a big risk in the MPF system? Look, I, I, I wouldn't say necessarily. Look, that that is not a fault in my professional opinion of the, of the authority. It's a fault of the fact that... Um, Scheme providers provide what clients demand and what clients demand is essentially dictated by the market. You know, the, the previous segment here, we talked about equity markets and we spent 15 minutes on the fact that S&P is over 2,000. Hang Seng has, um, you know, um, has had a very strong rally. Um, that motivates people to invest. The fact is, at the moment, you've got schemes that offer three choices. You've got schemes that offer twenty-seven choices, and there's no underpinning advice that goes with it. But you it, talk about you talk about clients demanding. But isn't one of the key problems is clients actually don't know what funds to pick up? How do people actually and, assess these funds? Th- that's exactly right. And the analogy I was going to make is choice as it stands now, without advice. Is a, bit, is a bit like herding cats. Um, and what makes it even more difficult without sort of the advice is it's a bit like herding cats and having two daughters at your hip and you're running around the house trying to sort of get everything together. You simply cannot do it. And that's where actually the concept of a core fund, if done correctly, is actually going to be to the long-term benefit of MPF members. Well, how would you design a core fund then if you were looking at something I think we need to take a step back from the obsession of low fees. The issue is not low fees. The, the, the issue and the concept should be about value for money. Simply lowering fees does not necessarily generate value for money. Services ultimately get eroded if scheme providers are not just generate not enough revenue to provide those services. I think transparency of fees is far more important, firstly. I think secondly, you know, there has to be a balance of growth assets and defensive assets commensurate with um, with member um, investment time horizons. How are we going to encourage providers then to provide the kind of pension pot that people want? You, you say that you, uh, the authority is necessarily to blame, but to a certain extent they approve the kind of products that are out there. Um, and the providers would turn around and say, well, we can't provide things that are more interesting or more exciting or, or more risk balanced. Yeah, and look, again, that's an excellent point. And, and that's one of the issues that, that we're dwelling with. We have three major awards every year, um, Scheme of the Year, Most Improved and Best New Product. And one thing that that has been stifled in the market is innovation. And arguably, the development of the core fund is going to further starve the market of innovation. Now, to some extent, I have less of an issue with that if the core fund is done correctly. But absolutely, the, the guidelines are, are somewhat constraining. Um, the I would say the overemphasis on low fees as opposed to value for money um, limits um, innovation as well, and that's certainly one of the issues that um, that the industry needs to um, needs to be aware of. Okay, okay, Francis, uh, thank you very much, Richard, as well. Uh, just out of time, I have to go to the news here at eight thirty. But Francis, many thanks for joining us on Money for Nothing. 
That's Francis Young, chief executive of MPF Ratings. Well, let's just uh, wrap up. We mentioned that there are quite a number of earnings today, and the one that Brooke McConnell mentioned uh, that he's interested in, China Fiber Optic Network. He didn't have the code. It is 3777, if you care to chase that up. And also the Agricultural Bank of China, another big one today, out with earnings, Costco Pacific Henderson Land, and Want Want, among many, many others. Let's check the weather today before we get to the news. Uh, mainly fine apart from isolated showers. Very hot. The maximum temperature, 33 degrees. And that is all the way up well over 90 Fahrenheit. Becoming cloudier with showers in the next couple of days. Stay with us. The news next. And then more of Money for Nothing. Money in politics in the second half hour. News with Samantha Butler. A member of the National People's Congress Standing Committee, Rita Fan, has told the organisers of the pro-democracy group Occupy Central that Beijing may take an even firmer stance on political reform here in response to their threats of civil disobedience. After meeting this week, the Standing Committee will announce a decision on Hong Kong's reform path on Sunday. One of the organisers of Occupy Central, Professor Benny Tai, said Mrs Fan's comments might be a way for Beijing to blame his movement for imposing restrictions on political reform here. Maybe that is just a strategy of the central government that the central government may decide that uh, they, they want to close all doors for further dialogue. And so by having making such a statement through Mrs. Fan and hoping that that will, you know, will change the Hong Kong people's attitudes towards Occupy Central or putting the blame to, to us and hoping that Hong Kong people will not sympathize or even join the uh, action if we have to resort to that action. Over 6,300 people have now voted online in an unofficial referendum on political reform in Macau. Poll organiser Jason Chow was among five people who were arrested on Sunday as they attempted to set up physical polling booths. The poll includes questions on whether there should be universal suffrage for its chief executive elections and what voters think of the incumbent Fernando Choi, who's seeking a second term with no official opponent. A 400-member committee will name Macau's new leader on August the 31st when the mock poll also ends. Speaking to RTHK this morning, Mr Chow said despite police harassment, they would continue with their poll online. We decided to go forward with our online voting. After repeated police harassment, we decided to hold our physical polling stations. The police officers almost stopped every citizen who came to our polling station, which effectively made our polling stations unable to be operated. And now we encourage citizens to vote online, and we also encourage citizens to teach those who are unfamiliar with the Internet to vote online. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Richard Harris. Uh, some of the top stories that we've been following this morning, markets rallied sharply overnight. European markets up uh, 2%, and even on Wall Street, the S&P 500 touched 2,000 for the first time ever. A couple of big mergers that are afoot. Uh, Amazon moves to acquire the gamer website. Twitch and Burger King looks to acquire Tim Hortons, a Canadian firm, and also thousands of casino workers hitting the streets in Cal. We have full details on the major news stories coming up as we look at those stories in depth. And we'll also be speaking with Ajit Melakod, who's managing director of Rackspace or the Asia Pacific. Rackspace, one of the leading firms in cloud computing. And we'll be having that discussion in about uh, eight to 10 minutes. But now let's get some detail on some of the top stories. A member of the NPC Standing Committee, Rita Fan, has issued a warning to the organizers of Occupy Central. She She says threatening Beijing over political reform will backfire. And she says the standing committee may respond to their uncompromising position with an even firmer stance than before. Ms. Fan was speaking to reporters as the committee started off a week-long meeting. The meeting is due to culminate in a decision on Hong Kong's uh, reform on Sunday. Cecil Wong has details. Mrs. Fan said she expects the Standing Committee to start discussing Hong Kong on Thursday, with its decision setting out a framework on political reform to be approved on Sunday. But she said threats from Occupy Central to block streets here, if Beijing does not deliver a form of democracy that's consistent with international standards, could backfire, and see the committee laying out a far more comprehensive framework on reform than activists would like to see. They've been calling for a broad framework that will leave room for further discussions. And while Mrs. Fan pointed out that the SAR, as a region of China, does not have the right to negotiate anything with Beijing, it can engage in a two-way dialogue. And what Occupy Central does not understand, she lamented, is the fact that many things could be resolved with Beijing behind closed doors through a two-way exchange. Well, one of the organizers of Occupy Central, Professor Benny Tai, says more dialogue is precisely what his movement and the pan-democratic camp want. But he's also, or he also did tell Arsessel Wong that he suspects that Ms. Fan's comments are part of a ploy to blame the Occupy Central movement for the restrictions that Beijing is about to impose on political reform in Hong Kong. After the civil referendum in June, they actually our, the, the Occupy Central movement, we have put, it, put forth a very clear sense that we want to have dialogue and really want to have a better communication with all sides. And therefore, we, want, uh, we, we, we met the chief secretary and presenting our situation, our, our, our kind of uh, uh, views to the chief secretary. And uh, last week, we can see that the pandemic uh, legal members and also uh, have a chance to meet with the director of the liaison office. And also on Thursday, some of them can, uh, went to uh, Shenzhen to meet with uh, uh, Li Fei, the uh, of the uh, official of Beijing, and I think that's the time that we start to have the dialogue. But I think we need more time. It is, uh, I think, in the in the past week, it's just a merely both sides declaring their position. If we could have more time for dialogue, I hope that we could be able to uh, come up with some kind of compromise or some kind of consensus in, uh, in, in solving the problem. But just now, we need a bit more time. And if the uh, standing committee in the decision uh, on Sunday allows sufficient room for further discussion or further uh, 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 um, discussion, then actually 
we would be able to come up with some kind of consensus that could be agreeable by all sides. And what do you make of the timing of Rita Fan's comments? She had very personal attacks against you, saying you're jeopardizing Hong Kong's uh, peace, you're jeopardizing our economy, you're jeopardizing the political stability. Uh, what do you make of the timing of this? She pointed out herself that she's never personally criticized you before. Well, I don't know that the, the, the why she made this uh, kind of statements. Actually, our position has not uh, changed since the time we started the action. I think we, our position is always like this, that we want to have an election system that can set aside the international standard. From day one, we put forward that. And then we have our civil referendum, and then we hope to start the, uh, the kind of dialogue. But just then, suddenly, uh, she makes such an accusation. Well, maybe that is just a, a strategy of the central government that they want to close all doors or further dialogue and so by, by having making such a statement through uh, Mrs. Fan and hoping that that will, you know, will change the Hong Kong people's uh, sub, uh, attitudes towards Occupy Central or, or putting the blame to, to us and um, hoping that Hong Kong people will not sympathize or even join the uh, action if we have to resort to that action. Professor Benny Tai, one of the organizers of Occupy Central. The MTR Corporation says it expects a cost overrun of some $3 billion for its West Island and South Island lines. The company is blaming the 10% increase on the complexity of the projects. As RTHK Suresh Chander reports, the latest updates to the railway's estimates come after officials earlier announced a similar 10% cost overrun for the high-speed rail link between Hong Kong and Guangzhou. The corporation said the cost of the West Island line will rise to $18.5 billion, up $1.3 billion from its original estimate. The price tag for the South Island line will reach $15.2 billion, an increase of $1.7 billion. The company attributed the cost overruns to what it called the complexity of the works and its timetable. The corporation's projects director is T.C. Chiu. When you do infrastructure underground excavation activities, particularly in an urban city-state, it's extremely complex to predict what you expect to see. If you look at the construction of the West Island Line, it's directly under the very congested uh, buildings of uh, old Hong Kong. So we have to take extreme care and a lot of precautionary work has to be done. And in the construction of the South Island Line, underneath Admiralty Station, we also have to take extra care and due care. And these are the complexities that add to additional cost and time. The corporation's acting chief executive officer, Lincoln Leung, said the cost overrun of the two lines will be funded by the railway. These lines are lines which are owned by MTR and any differences in cost will be uh, looked after by MTR. Mr. Leung was asked about the possibility of a further rise in the construction cost. This is our most realistic estimate at this time. Building rail systems, building metro systems is very complicated. And, uh, of course, this is at this time our most realistic estimate. The corporation announced earlier that the price tag for the express rail link had increased about 10% to around $71.5 billion because of construction delays. Mr. Leung said the government was now reviewing the new estimate. He was asked who will foot the bill for the extra cost. 
we will deal with the issue of the express rail link in accordance with the entrustment agreement that we have with the Hong Kong government. So that will be dealt with in line with the entrustment agreement. But Mr. Leung did not elaborate further. Suresh Chander reporting. The time is 8.42, 18 minutes before 9 o'clock. Thanks for joining us here on Money for Nothing. We'll give you a quick market check, and then we'll get to our next guest, Ajit Malarkod from Rackspace. Uh, but looking at markets, uh, we see really not too much movement this morning. You'd think that they might be a little bit more bullish, given that we had broad gains on Wall Street and in Europe. The Nikkei is down five points at 15,607, but markets in Seoul and Australia are higher. The ASX 200 in uh, in Australia, four points, and the Kospi in Seoul up about nine points. The dollar yen, 104.11. The euro is trading now at 1.318 US dollars. Well, for our industry segment here on the program, we look at cloud computing and how it is changing. We focus on the company Rackspace, a well-known niche player in this area. Over the past five years, Amazon and Microsoft have become the behemoths in the industry and others such as IBM and IBM buying SoftLayer and also Google are running in this space as well. And we say good morning to Ajit Malarko, Managing Director of Rackspace for the Asia Pacific. Ajit, good morning. Good morning. So you've got some very big players uh, running. I don't know if running is the right. Maybe they should be flying in the in this space, flying in the cloud. Uh, uh, but are you in danger of getting run over by these big firms? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, first of all, I'd like to comment on something you said at the start. I mean, uh, I, we don't consider ourselves a niche player. We are rated independently by our leading analysts like Gartner as leader, leaders in the managed cloud segment. Uh, very simply put, that's cloud with support, advice, services as a standard. It's actually Gartner that put you in the niche uh, category in its cloud quadrant. Uh, no, Gartner is actually in the latest cloud-enabled managed hosting uh, quadrants, rated us as the leaders in, in, in that space in North America and in Europe. And that's uh, yet to be conducted in the APAC space, if that's what you're referring to. Okay. Well, my colleague Chris Oliver uh, joins us also in our studios. Chris, you've been looking a little bit about uh, cloud computing. Um, what's your impression? Yeah, one, one of the issues recently is that uh, the competition by Google and Amazon locally and globally is pushing down prices for the cloud. I'm wondering how that affects Rackspace and their attempt to kind of grow their share here in Hong Kong. Yeah, sure. So what you're referring to is the uh, price reductions and in the infrastructure layer. I mean, we don't wish to participate in that race. I mean, that race to zero in infrastructure prices. I mean, as I said, the space that we really own and lead is the managed cloud space where we see uh, advice, support as standards. Uh, so that's 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 the area that we're really leading. The way we see it is costs uh, and the race to zero can only fall to zero, whereas uh, the quality of support, the economies of scale and expertise, which is what we play in, can only continue to climb. Now, Hong Kong companies lag behind, especially the U.S., when it comes to adapting or embracing the cloud. Do you, do you have any sense that that reluctance is changing? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's. Uh, I guess there is a maturity curve, so I wouldn't say it's quite lagging. It's just uh, the type of usage. 
Uh, in the Western markets, uh, people are uh, re- using cloud uh, slightly higher up the maturity curve. So on things like uh, disaster recovery applications, testing, and so on. Whereas in in, in the Hong Kong market, it's more uh, uh, you know using it for storage, more basic applications of the cloud. So it's just playing catch up, and we definitely see that changing on a on a continuing basis. You have a data center here in Hong Kong. Does does that uh, make a big difference uh, as opposed to relying on say data centers elsewhere in the world? That's a great question. So we uh, we sort of service two kinds of uh, clients. One kind of client is the 60% of the Fortune 100 and the 40% of the FTSE 100 clients that are coming into the Asian region. And there's a significant chunk of those that we service here with the data center in Hong Kong. The the other set of clients, and I have to say it's a growing and attractive chunk of clients, is the East-based clients who are actually growing through exports and uh, conquering the West, uh, if you could use that phrase. And they actually find it valuable to have a uh, Mandarin-speaking uh, you know, uh, account manager, let's say, for, the, for Chinese clients based here. But they actually host in data centers in the U.S. or the U.K. So both sets of clients uh, and data center locations are equally valuable to us. I'm just wondering about uh, online data security issues. Uh, I know that ye- yesterday Gartner said that worldwide spending would grow almost 8% when it comes to uh, spending on security. So if you keep your data on the cloud, are, do you have many companies that are worried about whether that information is going to be hacked? Um, I don't think that the concerns are specifically related to the cloud. I mean, I think the concerns are more related to sort of the concentration of data. Cloud is just uh, one of the you know different places to to keep data and specifically public cloud, if that's what you're referring to. So I think the concerns are in general about uh, you know hacking, where we've seen a, you know a growth in the publicized attempts at hacking. Uh, I haven't seen any specific concerns related to uh, to hacking related to the cloud in gen- you know in specific from my clients. And when it comes to uh, infrastructure issues, I know in Japan and South Korea, they have much faster sort of broadband download rates than we do here in Hong Kong in general, at least when it comes to the public. Is that an issue in adoption of cloud for your, for your client base? Uh, no, no, not really. I mean, if uh, if I look at the the, the profile of uh, you know the different kinds of clients that we are we are talking to, as I mentioned earlier, there's a set of you know Fortune uh, and, and FTSE 100 companies coming in here. They don't really see you know bandwidth as an issue. They pretty much operate globally. The bandwidth in Hong Kong is more than competitive, and the eastbound clients as well. They uh, the westbound clients from the east they have uh, access to the bandwidth uh, speeds that we've seen in the west. So both ways, I'm not seeing issues for my clients. What size are your clients? I mean, do you serve, you mentioned already the big companies, the FTSE 100 and the S&P 500 companies or Fortune 500, but what about small and medium-sized enterprises? Uh, can they use the cloud? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, as I say, I mean, when we talk about cloud, it's quite important to talk about the different kinds of cloud. The most commonly used uh, and uh, you know, term for cloud is public cloud. Um, which is uh, the multi-tenanted uh, infrastructure where you share uh, your stuff with lots of other people. There's also private cloud, which is uh, you know cloud-like flexibility, but just for you as a customer. And then there's dedicated hosting. What, what we what, specialize in is a mix of those three as hybrid cloud. Oh, hybrid cloud. <laughs> so that <laughs> is very buzz. another buzzword. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's a pretty commonly used, uh, you know, uh, uh, word. I think it's over the hype cycle. But to answer your question directly, I mean, we have we've got lots of customers, uh, you know, in the small and medium business space using that. Buy Me Design, which is a startup in Hong Kong, was uh, one of the more uh, public faces recently. I mean, I call it. Uh, you you often would have heard the term, you know, pay as you go for cloud. I call it pay as you grow for small companies. They start off on the public cloud. As they grow, they realize dedicated hosting is more for, suited to their requirements and they go on to hybrid. Would you make a big distinction uh, between cloud infrastructure as perhaps a service versus a technology platform? Um, yes. Uh, I, I guess there are three levels. I mean, I guess the pure infrastructure play uh, is what you referred to earlier in terms of the big players, you know, cutting their prices. Uh, we play, you know, over and above that, adding our support, uh, so it's almost support and, and advice as a platform. And we see us, we see the big players in the market actually discounting the prices from the standard that we've set for support and services of the platform. A couple of quick sort of very practical questions. Your stock price has suffered quite a lot, let's say, in the last uh, year or two. Um, I wonder if you have a sense of why that's happening. That's why I alluded in the beginning that, you know, you're really running with some of the big, really the big guys now with uh, Amazon Web Services and Google and IBM and all these types. Uh, and also, um, you've had a shakeup in management. Uh, has, has that stabilized for you now? Sure. Look, um I can't really comment on, uh, you know, the movements of the stock market. I mean, uh, uh, you know, personally, I like to say that the stock market can can stay rational for longer than you can stay solvent personally. <laughs> but as far as the rack space, uh, you know, stock is concerned, I mean, I guess uh, you've seen a, a recovery recently. There's been a lot of press around us. Um, I don't think there's been quite a, a management shakeup. Uh, I think what you're probably referring to is uh, our CEO, Landon Napier, leaving and then, you know, a very organized succession that took place with Taylor Road succeeding him as the president. And uh, I guess uh, that's showing up in our stock price recently. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's very interesting. I guess the final question would be, um, you know, do you see a lot of change in, in the cloud over the next couple of years? Is this a space that is going to dramatically change or will it just be incremental in improvements? Um, I think it's going to be a combination of both. I think there's going to be incremental improvements in technology, which is what the real infrastructure-based players who are cutting their prices are playing in. I think there's going to be quantum changes in the space where support is involved. Uh, if I can point out a couple of things that are happening in that space, one is uh, expertise uh, on what is hosted in the cloud. So we are seeing huge changes in uh, e-commerce and uh, software as a service players moving on to the cloud. And the services and support that they require is changing literally on a monthly, if not weekly basis. So that's evolving. Secondly, what you're seeing is what uh, you call the DevOpsification of the cloud. So previously, you had developers who'd come up with changes, and then they would uh, you know, bung it over the fence to the operations part of IT who would test it, and then bung it right back if there were bugs. The two are now coming together in, uh, in, a, in a new function called DevOps. That's a new and growing area. So if you combine the fact that there's increased specialization of services around the cloud and the fact that there's DevOpsification, I think there's very, very rapid changes on the support and services being provided around the cloud. And Chris, did you have a final question for Ajit? Well, what about our artificial intelligence? Do you think that'll actually happen? Oh, yeah. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, interesting technologies that are coming up in that space. I think, uh, you know, combined with, uh, you know, the, the MEMS, the, the microchips that are coming up in the Internet of Things, um, I think artificial intelligence is, you know, not very far away. 
Okay, um, Ajit, thanks, uh, thanks very much. Uh, oh, just one last thing about Hong Kong as a center for this. Um, you mentioned, or Chris mentioned in the beginning, that uh, we have lagged a little bit behind. Uh, is this likely to grow quickly now in Hong Kong? Will this be uh, a major industry for Hong Kong, say, over the next five years? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've, we've already seen that changing. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we set up in Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong is not only our Asian base, it's also our APAC headquarters, so covering Asia as well as Australia. What we're seeing, I mean, I, I referred a little while ago to the kind of clients that we're seeing. One is the West-based companies coming in. But you have a lot of East-based companies coming out, and they tend to come out through using Hong Kong as a stepping stone. You, I'm finding a lot of uh, software as a service companies, uh, you know, setting up in Hong Kong. I'm seeing a lot of e-commerce startups in Hong Kong. And I'm also seeing Hong Kong as being on the threshold of the Internet of Things, which means uh, big data is, uh, is growing very, very fast in Hong Kong. One of the reasons why we put our big data service into our Hong Kong data center as well. So big data and cloud computing go together? Uh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Okay, Ajit, thanks very much. Uh, good talker and a very interesting subject. So thank you for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Ajit Malarkod, who's Managing Director of Rackspace in the Asia-Pacific. Money for Nothing. The time is now six minutes before nine o'clock. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. We'll get back to our news coverage for you here on Radio 3. The socialist government in France has collapsed for the second time in four months because of infighting about economic policy. President Francois Hollande has accepted the resignation of the prime minister, Manuel Valls, and ordered him to form a new cabinet by the end of today. The French economy has not grown this year, and more than three million people there are looking for work. With his assessment of what lies behind President Hollande's decision, here's the BBC's Gavin Hewitt. At the heart of the French government crisis is the argument over austerity. It is a new version of an old debate whether growth or austerity should be the priority in Europe. It has resurfaced again because of the tepid growth in the Eurozone. Despite frequent claims that the recovery has arrived, the reality is that the German economy is slowing, France is stagnating and Italy is in recession. Today, a key German indicator found that business confidence had dropped for the fourth consecutive Executive month. The French government has already indicated that it will not meet the target agreed with the EU for reducing its budget deficit. Both France and Italy, however, believe the debate is changing. They want much greater flexibility in meeting budget targets. The German Chancellor, Angela Merkel, in Madrid today said she agreed with the Spanish Prime Minister when he insisted that growth comes from reforms like freeing up the labour market. But Germany is more isolated than in the past. Even Mario Draghi, the president of the ECB, is signalling that economic policy needs to favour growth. In the markets, there is an expectation that the European Central Bank is preparing to pump more money into Europe's economy. Gavin Hewitt reporting. Well, the Yes campaign has been given a big boost ahead of next month's vote on Scottish independence. Scotland's first minister, Alex Salmon, is said to have come out well on top in an often heated debate with a better together head, Alistair Darling. Here's our UK correspondent, Peter Anderson. It's been described as a bruising debate. 
debate. It's been described as a slanging match. Uh, one headline saying, Salmon Crushes Darling. Uh, and I have to say, with a little over three weeks until the vote, which takes place on September the 18th, this second and final debate has very much been seen as one that has been won by Alex Salmon, Scotland's First Minister, in favour of independence for Scotland. And I think there are a number of reasons behind this. Uh, he, he was badly beaten in the first debate with, uh, with success for the, the Better Together campaign. On this occasion, yes, it was more argumentative, yes, it was more bad-tempered, but I think Salmon appear, appeared much more relaxed. Darling looking uh, unexpectedly quite nervous, but I think Alex Salmon on issues was much better prepared on what currency issues there would be for Scotland and also he managed much more successfully to broaden the debate, to look at I would say much more populist areas things that played very well to the hall and I think probably to the television audience at home What were some of these arguments that held sway then do you think for Alex Salmond? Alistair Darling had Salmond on the back foot uh, for what was described as Plan B. The, the main Westminster parties in, in London have said that they are not prepared to share the pound in any kind of formal currency union. Uh, so they said, if, if Scotland goes it alone, you can't have the pound. And, and there was a lot of uh, sort of uh, accusations levelled at Salmond that there was no Plan B. On this occasion, he said that he came up with three Plan Bs. He'd obviously prepared his arguments much more successfully. He talked about a flexible currency union uh, with, with England and the rest of the UK. He talked about a fixed exchange rate, uh, citing uh, what he said you'd see in Denmark or in Hong Kong. And then he said that the final option is that the, if they could use the pound unilaterally. And one of the key quotes that came out in this debate was Alistair Darling having to admit that Scotland couldn't be prevented from using the pound. Away from the currency, uh, we saw Alistair Darling and uh, Alex Salmond clashing on the NHS, on welfare reforms, on job creation. And a couple of headlines from that, um, the, the Sc Scottish independence debate saying the NHS, the National Health Service, would be much stronger, much better for Scottish people in an independent Scotland. And the welfare reforms that are coming from London, uh, the Scotland, the pro-independence uh, parties are saying that it's driving children into poverty, saying 100,000 children, 100,000 disabled people are worse off in Scotland because of decisions being taken in London. And that is our correspondent in the UK, Peter Anderson, speaking earlier this morning on Hong Kong Today with Mike Weeks. Just one other note, BOC Aviation is buying $8.8 billion of Boeing jets, the leasing company's biggest order ever. It's a bet on airlines' demand for new planes to serve the air travel boom here in Asia. So that rounds out the program today. Many thanks to Richard Harris for joining me on the program. We'll just leave you with a quick look at the weather. It looks like pretty nice day today, uh, mainly fine apart from some isolated showers. The subtropical ridge of high pressure is bringing some generally fine conditions to us. It will become cloudier with showers in the next couple of days. The maximum today, 33 degrees. Thanks for joining us. Morning Brew coming up next right after the news at 9 o'clock. And we'll see you tomorrow. R -T -H -K.